Mark chapter 1, we're continuing in the Missio Christi series. The title of this message is Kingdom, part 1. There will be multiple parts. How many parts? I don't know how many parts. Only the Lord knows how many parts. But we're going to get started talking about the kingdom of God this afternoon. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your wonderful word that we're opening right now. Lord, it's wonderful because it reveals you to us. And we pray that, Christ, you would work in us to be more alive to you. You would teach us to more participate in your life, in your glory, in your kingdom. Lord, that you would make us passionate about your passions. That you would engage us in a radical pursuit of you, God. That, Jesus, truly, you would be the prize and the treasure of our lives. And so as we've opened up your word, we've done so expectantly, expecting that you would accomplish a good work in us, the Holy Spirit, you would speak to us. Lord, you know my heart and you know me, Lord, and I feel unworthy and unable to stand in this place, but I rely upon your grace and your anointing, and we ask that you just do a good work for your glory and for your fame. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in trying to understand the mission of Christ and our role in it, as we're endeavoring to do in this series, it's imperative that we talk about the kingdom of God. Now, the problem with talking about the kingdom of God is that there's so much to talk about. Kingdom of God and its synonym, the kingdom of heaven, are mentioned over 80 times in the New Testament. And the kingdom of God is the focus of Christ's ministry and his message. It's the focus of everything that Christ did and said the kingdom of God is. So in order for us to really approach it, we're going to have to be narrow as it pertains to this series and know that whatever we do say about the kingdom of God, there's much more that we could have said about the kingdom of God. We could go on forever. But in one way, the rest of this series will be an unpacking of what it looks like when the kingdom comes. But here's our concerns for at least this week and the next. Number one, for this week, in what way did Christ bring the kingdom and how does that affect our lives? That's what we want to deal with today. And then for next week, we want to look at this question. In what ways are we to be on mission in light of the kingdom of God? So for today, in what way did Christ bring the kingdom and how does it affect our lives? The first thing we want to realize is that when Christ came, he did bring the kingdom. That's exactly what he's saying here in our text. Look in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. It says, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, what we have here is the first public declaration of Jesus during the time of his ministry. And the first thing that he communicates is that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom has come. And then he communicates that there is an appropriate response on the part of humanity to the presence of the kingdom. Because the kingdom is here, people need to repent, is what Jesus says. Now, 
Jesus, when he came the first time, did come as king. We've got to realize that. He did come as king. They did sing during the triumphal entry, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And though he came as king, he came in a peculiar way, in sort of an unkingly fashion. We also read about the triumphal entry, that it was a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9 where it says, behold, Israel, your king comes to you humble and seated on a donkey. So he did come as king, but he came in a peculiar way and in a rather unkingly fashion. Here's why that's important. It is indicative to us as to the sort of nature that the kingdom would take on, that the king came the first time to establish the kingdom in humility, The character of the king there is indicative of what the kingdom would look like, the shape that it would take. But in talking about the kingdom of God, we also have to remember that Christ is coming again. Amen? And when he comes again, he will come differently. We are told in Revelation 19 that at his coming, on his robe and on his thigh is a name written, which is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Philippians 2 tells us that at that time, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And at that time, when he comes again, he won't be coming humbly. Matthew 24 says that he will be coming with power and great glory. It's important for a lot of reasons, the least of which is not that it again is indicative of the shape that the kingdom will take at that time. Kingdom will look like the king who at that time comes in power and in glory as a king of kings and the Lord of lords. So the kingdom was inaugurated, broke into history, and made manifest in a certain way when Christ came the first time. It will break into history again and be made manifest in a different way when he comes again. What we then begin to see is that when we talk about the kingdom of God, our understanding is that it is both present and future. The kingdom of God is both already and not yet. It is here and it is still coming, okay? It's already not yet present and future. God has always been king. The Old Testament understanding of God is that he's a king of the universe. The Hebrew said, Melech HaOlam, the king of the universe. Israel understood him as such, but what Israel had in the, New, in the Old Testament, excuse me, is a longing that this king of the universe would break into their context, that he would bring his authority, his rule and his reign into humanity, into their reality, into their suffering, into their difficulties, into their world, that the king of the universe would bring his authority and his reign right where they were. And when Jesus comes the first time, that's exactly what happens. He comes as the king inaugurating the kingdom. And the kingdom came with Christ. And that's what he says in our text. The time is fulfilled. So the kingdom of God is in time. It's in space. It's in history. It's in humanity with the coming of Christ. So it's not right to think about the kingdom of God as just heaven or the hereafter or life after death. That's a misunderstanding. 
It's in time, it's in space, it's among humanity, and it's broken to history. So what is the kingdom of God? Very simply, it is the rule and reign of Christ. The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of Christ, but we put it this way. It's the rule and reign of Christ that began in a peculiar way at the first coming, will be fully realized at the second coming, and is presently working in us and through us. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, it's the rule and the reign of Christ, which is historical, it happened in time, it's eschatological, it has to do with the future and the end, and it's practical. It is the present, current reign of God among us. Now, if we want to make it real simple and every day and for it to affect our lives, we need to sort of think about it this way. When we think about the kingdom of God, break it down to this simple fact, that Christ is king, okay? Jesus is the king. And what we all understand is that every king requires allegiance, We all get that, even though we don't have kings in America. Somehow we get that, that kings call for allegiance. And what is allegiance? Allegiance is loyalty and commitment. So when Christ comes, he calls humanity to allegiance. He calls them to loyalty and to commitment to allegiance through repentance. Time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The king calls the people to allegiance through repentance. And what needs to be repented of among humanity are wrong allegiances. Wrong allegiances. And the reason that we can recognize them as wrong is because the gospel has come. Right? Repent and believe the gospel, the good news that Christ has come, the Redeemer and the Savior of humanity. When he did come, when he brought the kingdom, he brought it into a certain context, and he brought it into a, a broad sort of context among the nation of Israel of difficulty, of suffering, a time of darkness. Matthew 4 explains this to us in quoting the Old Testament. It says about the coming of Christ, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw great light. And those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. So the king comes and brings a kingdom into a context of darkness. Now the reason that humanity is ever in darkness The reason that humanity suffers under the shadow of death is because of wrong allegiances, okay? Wrong allegiances. Now, Scripture confirms that Satan is a ruler of this world. It says that in John chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 2, and it says in 1 John chapter 5. Not the ruler of the world by right, but the de facto ruler by way of allegiance because men and women have wittingly and unwittingly pledged loyalty and commitments to Satan. Therefore, the Bible identifies him as the ruler of this world. What we know about Satan 
is that he's a bad ruler. Can I get an amen? Satan is a bad ruler. Jesus said he came to kill, steal, and destroy. Hebrews says that his reign is a reign of death. And Paul said in 2 Timothy that he keeps people enslaved. Satan is a bad ruler, but Jesus is the good king. And when Christ comes, it's the good king coming to deal with the bad ruler. Christ comes as the good king to destroy the works of the devil, it says in 1 John 3. The son of God has appeared for this reason, to destroy the works of the devil. It is a good king bringing life where there was previously death. It is a good king coming to seek and save that which has been lost because of wrong allegiances. He's coming to call sinners to repentance. He came to offer release to those who have been held captive by the devil to do his will. And he came to open the eyes of those whose mind the devil has blinded. So when the good king comes, he comes to handle the bad king. And he comes to bring life where there was death. He comes to bring light where there was darkness. And he comes to bring freedom where there was bondage. And what Jesus does in doing this is calls men and women then to enter that kingdom. He brings it and he gives the call to enter in through a change of allegiance. Through repentance. Now, we got to understand what repentance is. Repentance is not saying I'm sorry. Repentance is not feeling sorry. Repentance is a radical change of mind that affects a change in behavior. Repentance is a full change of mind that causes a change in direction. Christ calls people to repent because the kingdom has come. In other words, to change direction from wrong allegiances to giving their allegiance to the king, Christ Jesus. And this is his first demand upon humanity. In fact, Matthew has it as his first word of his public ministry, repent. What we need to begin to see is repent as a beautiful word. You see, the world wants to cast it as an oppressive word and religion wants to make it a a bad word. But what it is, is a beautiful word because it is through repentance, a change of allegiance that we come out of the darkness into the light, out of death into life through repentance. And what needs to be repented of are dead works and dead idols. Dead works and dead idols wrong allegiances. Dead works are those things that are contrary to the word of God and the will of God. Those things of the flesh, like the list that's given to us in Galatians chapter 5, says dead works are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, conflict, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Our allegiance to, our loyalty to, our commitment to these works of death need to be repented from. Says in Galatians 5.21 that no one who practices these things will inherit or enter the kingdom of God. What also needs to be repented of are dead idols, not just dead works, but dead idols. 
It's hard for some of us in this culture to get a grasp on what an idol is. You know, it's, sometimes it's that carved thing, that image that we would say, that's a God. But that's, that's foreign to most of our culture. Here's what's familiar to us. Let me, let me give you what I think is a biblical definition of an idol. An idol is that which forms and shapes your thinking and your behavior. Whatever is forming and shaping your thinking and behavior other than Christ is an idol. So if your thinking and your behavior, if your actions are driven by money in your pursuit of it, then money is your idol. Money is your God in place of the one true God. If your thinking and your actions, your behaviors are driven strictly by the well-being of your family, then your family is your idol that you've put before God. If your behavior, your thoughts and your actions are shaped and informed and driven by a relationship with another person, then either that person or that relationship have become an idol to you. These are what we call wrong allegiances that lead to death that must be repented of. And what Jesus said is that you cannot have dual allegiance. In the context of wealth, he said you can't serve mammon, the God of wealth in that time, and God. You can't serve both. There can't be a dual allegiance. Those false allegiances, those wrong allegiances have to be repented of. And so we begin to see the call of Christ following the announcement of the kingdom as being a radical call. It's not a call to say I'm sorry. It's not a call to merely accept him. It's a radical call to a change of direction. Last night as I was studying, somebody sent me a a list of quotes on Facebook and I was just on a list of other people that they sent these quotes to. And there are some cool ones on there. And this one grabbed me, and it pertains to what we're talking about. It's by a guy named A.W. Pink. And if you've ever read any of his commentaries, he's got way too much to say for way too long. But this is a good one. <laughs> Listen to this. He says, do you imagine that the gospel is magnified or God glorified by going to worldlings, that's sort of a pejorative term for not yet believers, by going to non-Christians and telling them that they may be saved at this moment by simply accepting Christ as their personal savior while they are wedded to their idols and their hearts are still in love with their sin? If I do so, I tell them a lie. I pervert the gospel. I insult Christ and turn the grace of God into lasciviousness means a wrong desire. That, that's a radical statement. I don't think it's as radical as Christ's statement that the kingdom has come. Repent of false allegiances. It's a radical changing of mind and change of direction from following anything other than Christ to following Christ. The gospel is that dead works and dead idols and our allegiance, commitment, loyalty, connection with them has made us spiritually dead. But that through the coming of Christ and his work, we can be made spiritually alive again. That is the gospel. And so we need to repent of dead works and dead idols, wrong allegiances, and give our allegiance to Jesus. And it's a radical decision. It's a big deal. In fact, a Jewish man came seeking 
how to get to heaven from Jesus. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. That's more than I'm sorry. And then Colossians 1.13 describes what happens. It's radical that we are rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son, which means we're rescued from the domain, the dominion, the rule, and the reign of those things which bring us into death. And we're now brought under the rule and the reign of the good king, Christ himself. We're now connected to, committed to, and loyal to Jesus When that happens, we experience the benefits of the kingdom. Now, what are the benefits of the kingdom? We could talk forever, but here's a few. Number one, we have victory over sin. Anybody ever struggled with sin? Anybody ever want to get victory over sin? In the kingdom, we have victory over sin. We no longer need to be in bondage to, ruled by, dominated by, enslaved by, or addicted to that thing anymore. We have victory over sin. Jesus said in John 8, Truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. But if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And so Romans says that sin shall not be master over you because you're no longer under the law, but you are under grace. And so we're set free from that bondage, that burden, that allegiance, that ruling of sin. We're set free by the king as members of the kingdom. We not only have victory over sin, we have victory over demonic opposition. Anybody ever been messed with by Satan? We have victory over Satan and his schemes as members of the kingdom. Jesus announced this, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What comes with the kingdom is kingdom authority, the authority of Christ himself, which is far and above every ruler, power, and principality. And he gives us this authority. He sent his disciples out on a little practice mission trip in Luke chapter 10, and they came back in verse 17 rejoicing, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. We have victory over sin. We have victory over Satan. And we have victory over sickness. Jesus said, whatever city you enter, this is on their little mission trip as he's prepping them, whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So an attribute, a characteristic, a quality, a benefit of the kingdom is victory over sin, Satan, and sickness. And for those who are members of the kingdom, these should be real, concrete experiences in our lives, victory in these areas. But what we must realize is that we live between two comings. The king came in a peculiar way, and the king is coming in a particular way so that we experience some of the kingdom right now and we will experience the fullness of the kingdom when he comes again. Again, the style in which he came is indicative of the quality of the kingdom. We experience some of the kingdom right now, but when he comes again, we will experience the fullness of the kingdom. 
Be sure that sin, death, and the devil were dealt with at the first coming of Jesus Christ. He defeated all of them in the cross and the resurrection. But we still experience some of them, don't we? What we have currently is the dominion of Christ working in and through his people. But at the second coming, the world will become the domain of Christ. As Revelation 11 says, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord. So what we have in the present kingdom is good news. What we have in the coming kingdom is even better news. Our understanding is that the devil has been defeated, but he will be tormented. Sin has been defanged, but it will be displaced. Death has been beaten, but it will be abolished. And healing has been provided, but it will be perfected. So we have good news now, and we have great news in the reality of the kingdom still coming. And where that puts us is in an age of hope. You see, we live in an age of hope. Now abide these three things, faith, hope, and love. And humanity survives on hope. What is hope but the the expectation that something good is going to happen? We are in a time of hope, looking forward to the fullness of the kingdom. But wherever hope exists, suffering exists. If there's no suffering, there's no need for hope. And what we discover in the present manifestation of the kingdom is that suffering is a component of the kingdom. In fact, there was no and is no entering into the kingdom without the suffering of the king himself. And in this present manifestation, he did not do away with all the suffering in the world. That is yet to come. But he has done away with the separation between the world and a holy God. And the New Testament says that part of what we enter into when we enter into the kingdom is the fellowship of his sufferings. Philippians 3.10. Paul said the fellowship of his sufferings. But because the kingdom is also coming in its fullness, we don't suffer like the world suffers. We don't see suffering the same way because we look forward to the day when he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, but the first things will have passed away. He's going to deal with all of those things that is coming. So in our present suffering, then we are able to say what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians 4, therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Eternal. 
And we're able to say what the Bible says in Romans 8.18, that I do not consider the sufferings of this present time worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. So because of the present, future, already not yet nature of the kingdom, we don't view suffering like the world views suffering. We see it differently. Because what the kingdom of God gives us is a theology of victory, a present theology of victory and a future theology of victory based upon the historical acts of Christ, his death and his resurrection. We have in the kingdom a theology of victory over sin, Satan, and sickness. But the kingdom also provides us with a theology of suffering an understanding of suffering. And both are expressed throughout the New Testament. This becomes important that we see both, that we have both a theology of victory and a theology of suffering as we continue to think about the kingdom in terms of our allegiance to the king. We have to realize that compared to the kingdoms of men and the domain of darkness, the kingdom of God can be seen as an upside-down kingdom, an upside-down kingdom, meaning that which is valued in the kingdom of God is different from that which is valued in the kingdoms of men in the domain of darkness. And what is valued in the kingdom of God but self-sacrifice and servanthood? In fact, these are shown to be in Scripture the antecedent to victory. The old saying is true that the cross comes before the crown. The values of the kingdom, the reason it's upside down, contrary to the world, is that it values sacrifice and servanthood. This is best exemplified by the king himself, who says in Mark 10, 45, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's important because the kingdom looks like the coming of the king. And the king came to serve. And he suffered. And it is only through the king's willingness to serve and sacrifice that we can enter into the kingdom and experience a theology of victory. But it also contains the theology of suffering. And we experience abundant life, eternal life, and we participate in the life of God when we live according to both of these kingdom realities. It says in Matthew 16, when Peter was struggling with this concept that Christ would be crucified, that the kingdom would look that way, that it would involve suffering. When he's struggling with that, Jesus said to all the disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, he's got to deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And take up your cross in that culture didn't mean anything other than suffering and death of self. For whoever wishes to save his life, values it greatly, is going to lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Paul was able to say to the churches when he addressed them in Acts 14, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Not meaning that through suffering, we earn a place in the kingdom. Rather, it means that through suffering, in the midst of suffering, we experience the fullness of the kingdom. We enter in. For the Apostle Paul, following Christ meant 
bearing the marks of his suffering. He said in 2 Corinthians 6, we're treated as imposters, but we're true. As unknown, yet well-known. As dying, but behold, we live. As punished, but we're not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. And the never-ending reverberation of the New Testament is to endure in hardship. In fact, Christ says, those who endure and those who overcome will reign with me. And, and, and if, you, if you read the New Testament and don't see the repeated call to endure in the midst of suffering, then you haven't read the New Testament. And what this reverberation does, what this call to endure in the midst of suffering does for us is it prepares us to maintain allegiance to the king in every circumstance. For what is allegiance unless it's been tried? What is a loyalty or a commitment unless it's been tested? And the reverberation of endurance throughout the New Testament prepares us to maintain allegiance to the king in all circumstances. Furthermore, what this already not yet here and coming perspective does is it keeps us from, as a church from sinking into secular humanism because we realize that part of what we want to do is alleviate the suffering of humanity. But part of what we're called to is suffer in the cause of Christ. And so it keeps us from just sinking to this place of not wanting anybody to suffer because we're willing to suffer like Christ suffered. Furthermore, this understanding of the kingdom being present and future from the perspective of the theology of victory, keeps us from sinking into secular humanism because we're not doing humanistic good deeds under human power. We have the power of God, the wonder-working power of God as we go forth on mission. And what the Bible does for us is it holds these two kingdom realities in tension, humility and power, suffering and victory. They're both there and they're both attributes of the kingdom and they're both held in tension by scripture. Humility, power, suffering and victory. And what this tension keeps us from is false expectations and theological tweaking. See, we understand that the kingdom comes with power and signs and wonders, but we're not obsessed with signs and wonders. We know that we will also suffer. But we can also say that the kingdom, though it is opened and experienced in suffering, we also can expect to experience power, healing, deliverance, and victory. Scripture holds them in tension. Let me highlight the concept of power for just a moment with an illustration. Someone posted this on uh, the Missio Christi website this week. I had asked you guys for your help to go and share your stories there and give me some insights as we're going through this together. And someone posted this this week. Theology of victory here. They say, quote, two months ago, I went to the Mac store on State Street to take a class. And I got to know my instructor and found that he was a fellow believer. 
He told me that he and his wife had been trying to have children for years and years, but to no avail. So I offered to pray for him on the spot. I laid hands on him and asked for the power of God to come down and help them have children. He actually responded by lifting his hands and bowed his head amongst the rest of the customers and the crowded store. I asked for a blessing on his wife's womb and for her to have the ability to conceive. He says, I just saw him last week at a coffee shop and he told me that his wife was pregnant with twins. He finishes by saying, I gave him a high five and we both gave God glory. (laughs) This is the stuff of the kingdom. This should be normative. We should expect and we should experience this kind of power in the kingdom. There's a theology of victory, but there is also a theology of suffering. Allow me one more illustration. My five-year-old daughter has stage three cancer. And she has suffered immensely through that. And what we've witnessed is the kingdom of God going forth in a way we've never seen before through her suffering. We've seen untold numbers of people who outright rejected Christ now telling us that they are considering Christ because they've seen the way in which this little girl has suffered. See, in the kingdom, you suffer in a certain way. More than I could remember, I have had personally prodigals come to me and say, I was far off from Jesus. I heard about Daisy. I was prompted to pray, and my life has been revived, and I'm on fire for Christ like I haven't been in years. Just last night, I was down surfing before it got dark, and my wife brought Daisy down to the beach, and they were walking on the beach and watching me surf, and... uh, This lady came up and was so excited to see Daisy, knew about her, and was talking to Kate, and she said to Kate, you know, before I heard about what Daisy was going through and her suffering, I didn't know how to pray. I never prayed. I didn't have a prayer life. For some reason, I started praying for this little girl, and my world has changed. I now pray for everything all the time. That is the stuff of the kingdom. This should be normative and expected and experienced within the kingdom, the going forth of the kingdom through suffering even. We have experienced the love and the unity of the body of Christ like we never experienced it apart from the suffering. And I have experienced the presence of Jesus like I have never known it before. And it's not as though I haven't experienced the theology of victory. My own mother had a lump in her breast and the doctors went to remove it and we had prayed and she said, test one more time and they tested one more time and it was gone. But I've never experienced the love, the unity, the fruitfulness and the presence of Christ like I have through this suffering. But both bring glory to God. And what Christ did with the kingdom is redeem both of those situations. They are both redeemed. But it is only when we understand the upside downness of the kingdom 
that the king himself suffered and we too will suffer, that we are then able to say that Christ is glorified in my weakness. And that is counterculture in a culture of power. What we need to then ask ourselves in closing is, will we remain allegiant, faithful to the king, even when we're experiencing the reverberations of the domain of darkness, the effects of sin and evil in this world? When they strike home, will we remain allegiant to the king? And will we remain allegiant to the king when he in his infinite wisdom and love allows a measure of suffering in our lives as the Bible says he will? You see, knowing that the kingdom is here, present and already keeps us in the difficulties of life from being ruled and overruled by those things because Christ rules over them all. And yet knowing that the kingdom is coming, future and not yet, will always keep us from losing heart because we know that Christ will right every wrong and wipe away every tear. And ultimately what keeps us balanced in all these things is when we realize that the purpose of the mission of Christ and the coming of the kingdom of God is to bring us to the king himself when we realize that Christ is the prize, that Jesus is the treasure, that the kingdom is not merely about the signs and wonders and the victory, nor is it about the pain and the suffering and the ministry, but it is about the king himself. And when we realize that the treasure is Jesus, then that's enough for us in sickness and in health. If Christ is our treasure, then that's enough for us in poverty and in wealth. The reason that the kingdom has come is that we might come to the king and he is to be our everything. And next week, we talk about what that looks like for mission. Lord, we thank you for being our king and for being a good king. Thank you for your victory and your deliverance and your mercy and your nearness in our difficulties. And we simply ask together, agreeing that we all need it, that your rule and reign would get bigger in our lives. We'd see more victory. We would suffer more rightly. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in our lives. Work that in us, Lord. That whatever our circumstances are, you would be glorified and they would be minimized in light of you, our treasure. Work this deep in us, Lord. We confess of too many wrong allegiances, too much connectivity to dead works and dead idols. Revive our hearts to love you above all else. Prayer team will be up here to your left if you need help. Communion is here to remember the king who suffered. Let's enjoy him now.